Welcome back to Education Station, your podcast for all of your pedagogical inquiries. Last week, we started our Adams Family Unit as we spoke with both narrator Henry Adams and character Henry Adams. We discussed the complexities of their relationship in conversation with one another, as well as the famous metaphor of the mannequin and the discovery that Henry Adams was the writer of The Education of Henry Adams. Now we will continue our series in conversation with the Adamses. This week, we will focus on their time as a student and a professor at Harvard University, with a special guest to shed some light on this area. The Adamses are the writer and main character of the ever-popular The Education of Henry Adams, and the direct descendant of John Adams, as well as John Quincy Adams, second and sixth presidents of the United States of America, respectfully. So, without further ado, let's jump back into conversation with character and narrator Henry Adams. Mr. Adams, thank you so much for joining us again today. Of course. My pleasure. Oh, I apologize. I know last week we determined that I would note which one of you I'm referring to by using the qualifiers narrator and character. But truly, thank you so much for being here. Common mistake. I, as narrator, am constantly being confused with the character. Well, as character, I'm tired of being assumed of or ignored and even forgotten. Hopefully today I have an opportunity to share some of my own thoughts. You will each have time to share your thoughts, I promise. First, let's talk about your time at Harvard University. I found it fascinating the level of distaste you had for Harvard's education program, yet you both were a student and a professor there. Narrator Adams, would you be willing to read us an excerpt from your book, The Education? The passage can be found on pages 56 to 57 for our listeners who are interested, and it details your beliefs about the kinds of students who attend Harvard University. Ah yes, a personal favorite. I thought I was quite clever here. Any other education would have required a serious effort, but no one took Harvard College seriously. All went there because their friends went there, and the college was their ideal of self-respect. Harvard College, as far as it educated at all, was a mild and liberal school which sent young men into the world with all they needed to make respectable citizens, and something of what they wanted to make useful ones. Leaders of men it never tried to make. Four years of Harvard College, if successful, resulted in an autobiographical blank, a mind on which only a watermark had been stamped. Wow, such strong feelings about Harvard University. As I understand it, this passage is meant to mean that Harvard University, during the time you attended as a student from 1854 to 1858, was a university grounded in social standing, and one that was only good for the name. Does this seem like a a fair assessment of your thoughts? Yes, except, well, I feel that it has always been this way, even during the time my family members attended Harvard. Fascinating. And if you could, Mr., I mean, narrator, Adams, would you be willing to explain what you mean by the watermark analogy in the sentence, four years of Harvard College, if successful, resulted in an autobiographical blank, a mind on which only a watermark had been stamped? Well, imagine that there's a letter addressed to you from Harvard University, and that letter contains a faint watermark which sits behind the content of the letter. Each of the words are colored by the watermark. Each of the sentences basically spell out, I came from Harvard or I went to Harvard, but does that change the meaning of the letter? Does this impact the words said or the student who attended Harvard? No, all that's changed is likely the reader's perspective of the writer or the letter. I am marked, so you are too. Well, hey, after the passage about Harvard's downfall, I did say the stamp was a good one. That Harvard College was probably less hurtful than any other university then in existence, 
and that it taught little and that little ill, but it left the mind open, free from bias, ignorant of facts, but docile, and of myself as the graduate, I had few strong prejudices and knew little, but my mind remained supple, ready to receive knowledge. Does that sound better, Henry? I'll be honest, I did not find Harvard itself to be very helpful in making my education, our education at Harvard that way. But the class of 1858, our graduating class, although nothing extremely special, yet certainly above average, did encourage me to be open to new ideas. I would credit them for the education we received at Harvard, or at least for the positive lasting impact. Trust me, I remember the class of 1858. Attending Harvard with those 100 young men was the first time my education brought me in contact with new types and taught me their values. You know, this does shed quite a bit of light onto the passage you read, Narrator Adams. And in that same passage, you also refer to an education at Harvard as an autobiographical blank. I personally found this interesting because of the mannequin metaphor, which we spoke about in more depth last week. We agreed that the mannequin is something of a blank canvas in which the object of study is the garment, not the figure, and that the tailor's object in the education is to fit young men, in universities or elsewhere, to be men of the world, equipped for any emergency. Perhaps this autobiographical blank, which is referenced in the education, an almost autobiography, means that in this case, when you were the mannequin, Harvard did nothing to garnish you or tailor your education. Perhaps. Alright, so I'm curious. If Harvard University did not give the both of you the education that you believed you needed, what does the ideal education look like to you, Narrator Adams? Well, in all actuality, perhaps Henry Adams was not worth educating anyways, but... Wow, rude. I mean, I know we aren't always the nicest to ourselves, but I am right here. Okay, all right. All jokes aside, what I do think an effective education should be is one that tries to lessen the obstacles, diminish the friction, invigorate the energy, and train minds to react, not at haphazard, but by choice, on the lines of force that attract their world. What I find particularly interesting about this definition of an effective education of yours is that you have a strong focus on the result of the education and less of a focus on the education itself. That in the end, the mind should, not, should be trained to react by choice to the forces that attract their world. For those who have not yet read the education, would you be willing to list some of the forces which you find the mind should be especially in tune with? Gladly. These forces must be studied and analyzed because they are always at work, and with an effective education they can be studied with excitement and ease. To list a few forces at work in the world, there are of course the many dichotomies, chaos and order, multiplicity and unity, success and failure, progression and regression, and then there are of course the forces of nature, of history, of family, and of power. Narrator Adams, I know we could do an entire episode on the forces at work within the education alone, but would you mind just expanding upon what the force of power entails in your opinion? The force of power can encompass many forces within itself. There is power within the military, within politics, within fame, and within technology. And you have studied each of these forces at work within the education? I tried. I wonder then how you argue you have had no education when you have indeed studied these forces with what seems to be ease and excitement. It was not easy, and I did not study the forces well. I knew before writing the education that throughout human history the waste of mind 
had been appalling. And as the education is meant to show, society has conspired to promote it. No doubt the teacher is the worst criminal, but the world stands behind him and drags the student from his course. I am ineffective and uneducated, and during my times as an educator at Harvard, I never felt as though I was qualified to educate my students. My own education failed me, and when I became an educator, the vicious cycle continued. With all of your writings and teachings that many scholars have themselves studied, I still have to argue with you, sir, that you are an educated man but I do not think I will be able to sway you from this point. However, maybe someone you knew during your time at Harvard could bring in a different opinion about your ability to be educated and to educate. This was a man who also attended and taught at Harvard, and he hired you, Henry Adams, as a history professor there. He is known for his contributions to liberal schooling, which is still used today, and for becoming one of the younger presidents of Harvard University in his time, Charles W. Eliot. Thank you so much for having me. I love discussing education. You know, Henry, uh, narrator Henry uh, Adams, you have some rather fascinating views on Harvard University. You could say that again. All right, you two, don't go ganging up on me. We all have our own ideas about education, I'm sure. Well, thank you for your insight, Mr. Elliot. I would have to agree with you. The Adamses do have quite the opinion on Harvard education, or at least narrator Adams has quite the opinion. Character Adams, I am sorry. We have not heard much from you yet. What is your take on the education you received at Harvard? It's all right. After hearing the thoughts of narrator Adams, I've become quite confused about my own opinion. I thought I knew what it was, but as Adams spoke about our education at Harvard, I began to see the truth to his thoughts in hindsight. This is difficult because, I have to admit, there is not much evidence of your own opinion within academic writing. You had shared that you agreed with narrator Adams that your time at Harvard was maybe only good for your exposure to your classmates, but do you think that you could explain more about what you mean when you say that you are seeing the truth now in hindsight? Well, during my time at Harvard, I knew that I was only attending to appease my family. That it was basically set in stone for me to attend. Harvard was almost as much of a part of my family's tradition as the Quincy Mansion House itself. My father, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather were only the more distinguished members of my family's lineage at Harvard, and it was not often that an Adams was not serving as a member of the Board of Overseers or as a committee man promoting reform of the curriculum. What I learned at Harvard, I learned little of, and after hearing narrator Adams speak about what he felt Harvard did for him, for us, in the long run, I would have to say I agree. Thank you, Character Adams, for sharing. It is rare that we get your insight, and I will try not to forget to ask you about it again. So, before we began recording today, I overheard the three of you catching up a little bit, and I heard Mr. Elliot say something very interesting. I believe he mentioned how he was a member of Harvard's class of 1853, which means that he had been forced to study the still largely intact undergraduate classical curriculum, and that he attended Harvard just a year before you Adamses did. Is that correct? Indeed. Correct. That's right. Wow, I did not realize you were all so close in age. And Mr. Elliot, if you don't mind my asking, can you describe what a classical curriculum was and what you proposed to change it to instead? Yes, well, my goal was to replace the schoolboy model, the classical one, which placed high value on students' ability to regurgitate information. And instead, I was particularly interested in allowing the undergraduate self-selection of studies, considering how dissatisfied I had been with my own undergraduate experience just 15 years prior to becoming president. 
I jumped at the opportunity to affect radical change in education. I believe there were practical and lifelong benefits for students to use the liberal education approach versus the classical one. I found that when a student was enabled to follow his own peculiar taste and capacity, it prepared a way to happy, enthusiastic work, and God willing, to usefulness and success. I guess a very similar outlook to the Adams's ideal outcome of education. For sure. And how did you go about making these changes at Harvard? It must have taken years, and maybe even a lot of backlash. For me, changing social conditions and habits demanded that the university brought in its curriculum, improve its teaching methods, and make provisions for individual talents and interests. But expanding the curriculum meant the introduction of new subjects rather than a radical reorientation of AIM. And because I went about making changes in this way, I had many supporters within a few years of suggesting changes to the classical education. Each side of the argument felt as though they had been heard and were more willing to listen to the benefits of change. That is amazing. And what, for you, was the most beneficial outcome of the change you made in education? What was more significant to me than the advances in the teaching of particular subjects was the growing appreciation of the role of a student in choosing what to study and the effect this had on the spirit and methods of teaching. Hmm. As you know, the three of us have been away for some time, and I would be extremely interested in hearing about your experience with either a classical or liberal education, but especially a liberal one. Have you been exposed to a liberal education? And if so, what did you experience? Well, thank you for asking. I have been a part of a liberal education framework, some in high school, but mostly in college. And I do find that choosing my own coursework has been beneficial for my overall success because in semesters where I know there is a class that requires more attention and harder work, I will bounce it out by registering for other classes, which will still benefit my education, but that will not overwhelm me too much. I have also had the liberal education work in my favor in a way that I can tailor my schedule so that class subjects go hand in hand with one another. This allows my overall education to be cohesive each semester. Use of the Socratic method and student-focused curriculum has also been evident in and useful for my education. I am sure that liberal education has evolved quite a bit since your development of it, but liberal education is very much in effect still in America, much more than a classical education. Well, that is great news. Good, I'm glad. And Character Adams, I know you started working at Harvard University in 1870. Could you tell us the story of how you came to work at Harvard? It is quite a long story, but sure. In 1869, I received two letters which had pursued me across Europe. The letters were from this man right here, Charles W. Eliot. At the time, he was the new president of Harvard College. Anyways, the letters from Eliot offered me a post as assistant professor of history. With no family counsel to urge prudence upon me, I responded something along the lines of, The offer you make me is not only flattering, but brilliant, yet yeah, I cannot accept it. That two years ago I should have hesitated long before deciding, but having now chosen a career, I am determined to go on it as far as it will lead me. I did offer that, perhaps 10 or 15 years hence, if I am satisfied that my experiment has failed, I may be glad to make myself useful at Harvard if I am still wanted, but for the present I can only thank you for your kindness of your proposal. And at the time I thought that would be that, but I was wrong. My right-hand man, Gurney, was eager and hopeful for a positive response from Adams, and late in August, Gurney, still hoping that Henry Adams could be persuaded, conferred with his father, who very much wished that his son would take place for five years and then go to Washington again. 
I believe it was due to the persuasion of his own family that he even agreed to teach for us, but I'm sure glad that he did. Well, it is true that it was not just you and Dean Gurney that made a very strong personal appeal to me. But my brothers were earnest about it, and my father leaned the same way. I hesitated a week and then yielded. I became assistant professor of history at Harvard College with a salary of 400 pounds a year, and about 200 students, the oldest in the college to whom I taught medieval history, of which as you are aware. I am utterly and grossly ignorant, but hey, I gave the college fair warning of my ignorance, and their answer was that I knew just as much as anyone else in America knew on the subject, and I could teach better than anyone that could be had. My poor students. Our poor students indeed. Character and narrator Adams, you are extremely educated. There was no reason for Mr. Elliot to doubt that you were not so. But I did wonder, was it true, Mr. Elliot, that hostile critics attached special significance to the fact that Mr. Adams' father was the most distinguished member of the Board of Overseers, and that Mr. Adams' eldest brother, John Quincy, had been one of your classmates? That could be true. I yielded to the family influence, which was in a truth a surrender, and it was done against my strongest inclinations. But my two elder brothers were settled in their careers, and Charles was railroad commissioner of Massachusetts and could turn to matters of practical reform, while John had his work as a gentleman farmer and was considered a perennial Democratic candidate for governor of Massachusetts. I was going on 33, and I knew my role as congressional lobbyist was honorary only, and I was reminded that my grandfather, John Quincy Adams, had been a Harvard professor, so how could I say no? Hey, we tried to tell you we didn't get the job because of our education or wherewithal, and my father was very adamant about wanting me to take the job offer. As the person this question was addressed to, absolutely not. Critics will always doubt the volition of a job offer to one who has family ties to the place offering, but I want to squash the very idea that this was the reason we chose Henry to teach for us at Harvard. I do not have small expectations, as you may recall in my inaugural address. I had demanded that history should be taught by teachers of active, comprehensive, and judicial mind, by young men and men who never grow old. And that was not all I could list the many people who referred me to Henry Adams for this position. What people? Well, to name a few besides Dean Gurney, who, you know, fought for your candidacy as an educator at Harvard, there was also Sir Charles Lyell who admired your scholarly acumen, and Charles Dean, a leader of the Cambridge Historical Group, who openly praised your ability as a historical writer. And you had the confidence of John Gorham Palfrey, the Dean of the New England Historians, and Palfrey himself had encouraged your st studies for the nine years prior to Harvard, offering you a position as a professor. And to the readers of the nation and the members of Reform Association of Boston and New York, there could be no doubt of your taste, your energy, and your personal power, with which you have impressed far worse judge of men than Dean Gurney. That is encouraging. Henry Adams was received well by many, but not by himself, I should know. Narrator Adams, please stop speaking for me. Sorry, force of habit. All right, all right. Thank you all for enlightening us about your experiences at Harvard in the 19th century. To give you a little insight into the 21st century's collegiate education structure, today, two-thirds of college graduates complete their degree in part through taking on debt. The need for increasing numbers of students to borrow money to attend college, 
coincided with the time of crisis in America, which has been labeled as the Great Recession or the Second Great Contraction, and it's compared to the Great Depression of 1929. It has been proven that additional educational debt beyond about $10,000 actually reduces the likelihood of college completion compared to lower levels of debt as the burden of repayment looms. Graduation likelihoods for students from the bottom 75% of the income distribution at public universities are especially influenced by debt. And in public universities, the expansion of enrollment has occurred simultaneously with the defunding of higher education by states resulting in sharply rising tuitions and a massive debt crisis for students. Therefore, I want to leave us with one last question and answer from each of you. My question is, is it important for a college education to be offered to a majority of population, or should it remain exclusive and difficult to obtain? I would love to hear each of your thoughts about this. I have to say that if even the most privileged of students cannot learn from a Harvard education or even a college education, then what would be their point in teaching those who would also likely not understand the education they would be receiving? Interesting. And Narrator Adams, I want you to also answer, but consider how you think this would affect your desire to attend school if you were unable to afford it, especially as you found it to be only semi-useful. I have to agree with Character Adams for the most part, seeing as how we are one, but I do see your point. Since education has failed me so much in the past, to go into debt because of it would be a real kick in the rear. Elliot? I'm all about allowing students to have specific experiences based on their needs in college. And if students want to receive a college education, then they should be allowed to do just that. Thank you all for sharing. That is all the time we have for today. Thank you again to my guests for taking the time to be here and for sharing their thoughts with us. And thank you for listening. Next week, we will be continuing the Adams Family Unit. We will analyze the modern-day use of science in education with narrator and character Henry Adams and a special guest, Charles Darwin. What will Darwin think of his legacy? How will he feel about the way his theories are being taught in the modern-day classroom? And how will he feel about schools which refuse to teach his theories? And what do the Adamses think about all of that? Today's episode was brought to you by the invention of the dynamo, invented in 1831 by Michael Faraday. Without the dynamo, we would not have had the electricity to charge our technology to record today's podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel, Education Station, so you can always stay up to date on the latest conversations about pedagogical inquiries. Have an educated day.